tonight, <clears throat> I just want to spend a few uh, minutes at the beginning here um, to give the background for a scene that we're going to study in 1 Kings 18. Um, this is the famous uh, Elisha at Mount Carmel. Um, very much of a uh, historical event, crisis event in the history of Israel. Um, and a lot of issues were resolved, actually, at Mount Carmel. So I want to kind of give a little bit of background. Um, these are pictures uh, that I took one back 20 years ago when I was in Israel. And I want to do it just because it's refreshing when you read the text of Scripture to realize that it happened in a place and that little things that you see in the text actually are there. Um, and it you know, might just help, help our, uh, strengthen our faith. Um, this, of course, is a relief map of Israel. And I just show this because uh, to remind us, it's an exaggerated elevation, uh, just to remind us of the general terrain of Israel and why, if you read further some of the chapters we can't read, like 1 Kings 20, we're not going to be able to cover... Um, the, the, the remark of the Arameans or the Syrians is that Jehovah God is a God of the hills. Um, if you can't see, by the way, these pictures, I realize we're not the best projection conditions, but feel free to move around and come up here where you can see it. Um, Israel ha- ha- is characterized geographically by a great rift. And this relief map, of course, shows the rift running down from Lebanon through uh, Lake Kinneret, or in the biblical times, um, the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea. And everything east of that is just kind of high plain and desert. And this is Moab today, of course, the nation of Jordan. And here are the hills, and then the hills descend to a flat plain. And it was this reason why, in 1948, when Israel declared its uh, independence, that um, the Jewish armies uh, fought and lost a lot of people going uphill to take Jerusalem and to take those high lands. And this is still why the Israelis are very reluctant to pull back from terrain, because you can see, uh, actually, the West Bank, the so-called West Bank area, is very high. And so you have the military advantage there. But for our purposes tonight, we're concerned with this little perturbation of land that sticks out here um, just north of Caesarea. And uh, up in here is the modern city of Haifa. So that's the, this little jut of land is the um, um, Carmel Range. And north of that is Medigo and the so-called Valley of Medigo. <clears throat> Again, it's just another view to get, get a feel for the, the height and why Jerusalem is high and that Canaanite areas were in the lowlands. This is uh, a map. As I, unfortunately, it's cut off on the bottom, so we can't look at that very well. Okay, this is um, looking uh, on Mount Carmel where this thing took place. It gives you the idea that it is a mountain and it's high. Um, and in the text, you'll see that Elijah uh, says, uh, he goes up to the mountain, he makes a comment, I can see the clouds coming that are going to bring the rain from the Mediterranean. 
And uh, when I was there, I tried to take a shot. It's the, the, the range extends all the way out to the sea. This is the Mediterranean. So even though uh, right now on this part of the range we're not actually on the ocean, that close to the ocean, you can see, see the Mediterranean Sea off in the, in the, in the uh, distance. And so when Elijah makes this comment in the text, he can see the clouds coming in. That's where, probably near where he was standing when he said that. This uh, looks west uh, to the city of Haifa, and clearly you can see the water there. So again, notice the height. So it's a pretty high place for, for that area of the world. Now we're, we're moving more north, and I'm going to show you northeast and east-northeast from this land, this, this area. Um, you can see here part of a wine, you can see some trees growing in a little windy path, and that, you can guess that's a, a, a river, or it looks like a brook to me, but they call it a river. And that is the river Kishon. And that features in the story because the blood of the, uh, the, blood of the prophet is going to go down through the Kishon River. It's a drain off from that range. But it's very small and by our standards. And this um, looks further east, and um, down in that, that's that valley of Medigo, the so-called valley of army, the place where the uh, armies in the future are supposed to gather together. That is a great valley. There's plenty of room to maneuver there. And you'll notice it's completely flat. This is another, another shot pretty close to where Elijah did his thing but looking directly down. And it just kind of, again, gives you a sense of where chapter 18 of 1 Kings took place. Here's the river Kishon after you come off the range. Now we're down in the valley looking back at the range. This is the height of Mount Carmel, the Carmel Range. It's not one mountain, it's the mountains of Carmel. So this gives you an idea of how high they looked. And, and this is the little brook they call the river of Kishon. And this little tell is another city that uh, is mentioned in 18, featured also in chapter 21, 22. This is the tell on which was built the city of Jezreel. And it's in that valley. This location is on this road and some of these roads, by the way, are still on the biblical roads. They just kept on building the road on top of the road on top of the road. But that particular place, uh, you'll read in the text where Elijah um, ran before the chariot of Ahab. Well, that's about, I think when we drove that, we figured out it was about 23 miles. So when it says he ran before the chariot uh, in 1 Kings 18, and then in 1 Kings 19, he's tired and depressed. Uh, you can kind of get sort of a reason that he basically ran the Boston Marathon here. Okay. Um, I think that uh, gives... Yeah. That'll be all for the slideshow here for a while. And uh, we'll go into the text. If you turn to 1 Kings 18, while we're disposing of this thing...
One other item of business before we um, proceed too far in the lesson tonight. We wanted to congratulate certain individuals. <laughs> Half a century. <laughs> okay. Um, let's let's look at, at where we've come and w- how we get into this 18th chapter. Our whole uh, approach in Thursday nights has been to go from chapter or key event to key event. And we've gone through the key event, the Exodus and the Conquest and Settlement, which was a cluster of events. And that's what we're really working with here in Kings. We're another one of these clusters. We, the Golden Era of Solomon, we looked at that. That was the high point of the kingdom. Then we are looking at the decline of the kingdom, and we're in particular looking at the division of the kingdom. We've said that in the division of the kingdom, you had the rejection of the Davidic dynasty. That was number one. And and that happened in Solomon Rehoboam's day with Jeroboam. Then Jeroboam no sooner got to the throne in the north, and he rejected the entire temple, rejected the priesthood, rejected the calendar, and basically set up a man-made religion with a biblical vocabulary. I mentioned that last thing, with a biblical vocabulary, because when Ahab comes to the throne, there's no pretense at a biblical vocabulary. By this time, God himself has been officially removed as the great king of the nation. That's what's happening. He married the daughter of a king uh, in Tyre and Sidon, who was one of the great proponents in the ancient world for Canaanite religion. He had survived the conquest and settlement, and uh, most of these Canaanite, the tradition of Canaanite religion had gone north into what is now Lebanon. And so this is where Jezebel comes from. Her father is uh, king and he is priest and she was raised as the daughter of a king and a priest and she behaved as a daughter of a king and a priest because she carried on her father's agenda. So we'll see a little bit about that tonight. Uh, before we get to First Kings 18 though, If you'll turn to page 25 in the notes, um, I mentioned that the stories that we're looking at have to be seen in the light of the Mosaic Law. The prophets are not social reformers. That's the kind of stuff that you get in a liberal classroom somewhere. But that's not biblical. The prophets are men who acted as, you might say, prosecuting attorneys for God. They were men who brought a fresh word of God because keep in mind the Bible was being written in that day. And who were the writers putting all this history together? It was the prophets. So the men that you see who are the prophets, are they are adding to what the Levites. The Levites taught the Torah, the first five books. The prophets added to those books. Now, they dared not add to the books promiscuously. They, add, they, they went to the books as the word of the Lord came to them. Last time, last Thursday night, we went over the two tests of a prophet. Let's review. How could you tell a false prophet? Number one test was that the teaching of the false prophet conflicted with the Torah. There was a theological conflict going on between the so-called prophet and Moses. 
And the important fact in test number one is that it didn't matter whether the guy impressed you with his miracles. Fulfill actual real miracles are not authenticating authenticators by themselves. There has to be a theological continuity between the living prophet and the dead prophet. And if there isn't the theological continuity, he's, he's not only excommunicated, he's killed. Because being a false prophet was a capital offense. Capital offense. Now, why do you suppose that was a capital offense? Because it was the lifeblood of the nation. The kingdom lived on the basis of the word of God. So if you messed with the word of God, you were tampering with the very umbilical cord, spiritually, of the whole nation. So that was a capital offense. The civil government is invested in Scripture, as we said two or three years ago when we did it with the Noahic Covenant. The essential feature of civil government is capital punishment. And I think it's appalling that in the debate in Texas, um, much as we are, take pleasure in the redemption of a, of, a, of a murderess, that that debate had to get evangelicals arguing somehow against capital punishment. Now, this is where people in our own camp are arguing the basis of their emotions instead of the basis of the Word of God. And the Word of God says that there's such a thing as capital punishment. Now, you can debate the application of the capital punishment to particular cases. That's, a, that's up for the lawyers and the attorneys and the experts and judicial procedures. But to argue that there is no such thing in the New Testament or post-Jesus as capital punishment is to say that Romans 13 doesn't exist. The sword is always there. And the sword is the emblem of civil authority. In fact, the New Testament goes so far as to say that the Roman soldiers carrying the sword, who were not the righteous, most skillful police force that ever lived, that these guys are called ministers of God. That same term is used of pastor-teachers of the Word of God. So now, what is Paul saying? He wasn't saying that all the soldiers were saved. He's not arguing that this is a spiritual ministry of God. He's arguing that this is a ministry of God because it's a divine institution. Just like marriage, just like family, so is the state. And the state has a function. And the state's function is to preserve order. And you can't have welfare, growth, and prosperity if you don't have order. You've got to have that in order to have the rest of things. It came, that was uh, made, as I said back when I taught this two years ago, I made the comment that at one point, I, as part of my military training, I had to work with civil defense people. And we were in a major metropolitan area, and part of my assignment was to work with the emergency operations plans, and you get with the police, and you get with the fire, and you work these things out. And I guess I'd never thought it through before, but you have to cover all the cases, and one of the cases is where you have a bad storm, or you have something that totally disrupts the community, and you have looting. Looting just emerges because people are sinners. So, the first function, in spite of that, you may have fire, you may have all kinds of injuries and everything else. Ambulances and fire people can't work if there's not order. So the first people that have to be in there are the police. First the police, and then we worry about ambulances and we worry about fire suppression. And it's the principle that you've got to have order. And that's what gives us order. And if you don't have that, you have chaos. So that's the argument, and I'm sorry, but that scripture says that, whether someone's trusts the Lord or not, still the function of government is to enforce that. Well, 
false prophecy in this day was enforced as a capital offense. So we have this number one proof, theological inconsistency. Number two, what was the second test of a false prophet? Deuteronomy 18. And that was that his prophecy did not come to pass. So we want to go back to that and ask ourselves, if that really is the case, then in the First Kings 18 story, we ought to see these things working. And so we want to go to this First Kings story and to review. Let's... Um, See if I get this in focus here. Um, let's put down these two tests. Test number one is a doctrine test. That is, does the doctrine match the scripture that's already been given? So this doctrine has to fit with the word of God previously given. Test number two is whether the miraculous work um, we'll just call it the miracle. Whether the miracle comes to pass. Now what you'll watch in 1 Kings 18 is these two tests applied. So let's turn there and uh, look at uh, start with verse 1 of 1 Kings 18. At this point in the history of the nation, the apostasy has gotten so bad that the state is now officially persecuting the loyal prophets. Not only just ignoring them, now it's actively persecuting them. We see signs of this here. It came to pass after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. For three years, God has withheld rain. The economy of this nation is wrecked. Now, God is a God of grace. And God is going to uh, not let the nation be totally destroyed. But the point that we want to make is because they're God's people, they're God's nation, he is a holy, righteous father, and he runs his kingdom as a good father runs his family. And there are certain authority issues that are going to be resolved. And God will not permit his people to act in certain ways very long without taking corrective action. And that's the story of this whole process. So for three years... The Lord is disciplining and chastening the nation. Now, he can't chasten it to the point of extinction, although he will later under a certain condition. The point that he's saying here is that I've chastened you three years. Now, let's see if I've provoked to faith and repentance anybody in this kingdom. On the bottom of page 25 in the notes, this is a somewhat artificial form but I, th I quote it only because it's interesting from the standpoint of Jewish tradition. The rabbinical Haggadah says, this is a story of what went on in Elisha's day. Now, it's, it's, it's patterned really after Deuteronomy, so you can understand that some of this may be exaggerated, but nevertheless, it was a report in Jewish tradition of what happened. In the first year, everything stored in the houses was eaten up. In the second, the people supported themselves with what they could scrape together in the fields. The flesh of the clean animals sufficed for the third year. In the fourth, the sufferers resorted to unclean animals. In the fifth, to the reptiles and insects. In the sixth, the monstrous thing happened that women, crazed by hunger, consumed their own children as food. And in the seventh year, men sought to gnaw flesh from their own bones. 
If you compare that with Leviticus 26 and 28, which I give you there, by the way, that's not Leviticus 28, it's Deuteronomy 28, so I'm going to correct the notes, it's a mistake there. Um, you have the outplaying of this awful drought, and God is going to bless now. The, the chastening has gone on long enough, and he's going to bless. But in doing this, several factors come out to light. So let's watch what happens. Verse 2, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. The famine was very severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, notice, the, notice this. This is interesting. Look at, just think about verse 3 a moment. Here's the king of the northern kingdom. He has ignored the prophets. We said last time, there's evidence in previous chapters, that the prophetic class in the north was basically silent. They were not actively speaking out. The only people actively speaking out against Ahab came from the south into the north to carry the message of the word of God. But that is not to say there wasn't a set of believing prophets operating in the north. And interestingly, one of the great believers in that day of suffering was none other than one of the managers in the bureaucracy of Ahab. So it shows you, in spite of the fact that Ahab came to office with a queen who was importing her foreign agenda, her pagan agenda, and trying to impose it upon the nation, he was meeting with resistance inside his own bureaucracy. Here are one of his top officers, and he's a believer. It says he feared the Lord greatly. And it came about when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave and provided them with bread and water. Then said Ahab to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of the water of the valleys. Perhaps we'll find grass to keep the horses and mules alive. And so they go out to survey it. And notice in verse 6 that evidently he's so high up in the bureaucracy that Ahab almost considers him a co-king, which is sort of interesting that this goes on. All the while Jezebel is out to kill these guys. And the story goes on in verses 7 on through verse 16 to show you that how he meets Elijah. Now he gets afraid that if he goes back and he tells Ahab well, he's met Elijah, now Ahab's going to get mad at him because he was supposed to have cleaned all these people out and he doesn't. And Elijah says, um, verse 17, one of the great meetings. This wouldn't be a great one for a film. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, troubler of Israel? Now see, things weren't too friendly at this point because the prophets were considered as a threat to the unity of the country. Let's think through why is that. Why were the prophets and the believers in the northern kingdom considered a threat by Ahab? Well, what had Ahab inherited from Jeroboam? A foreign religion a man-made religion. Why was that religion there? Because they held to a two-kingdom, two-religion doctrine. In other words, God said, let the nation be divided into north and south, but it will be unified by common adherence to the word of God. These men were afraid of their political insecurity, and so what they decided to do was make, if it was going to be two kingdoms, it would be two faiths. And by Ahab's time, it came to be two gods. So this is time for a confrontation. And we're going to see these two tests now applied on Mount Carmel, where you saw in those pictures. He says, um, Elisha came to the people, by the way, in verse 19, he had told him to gather me to all Israel at Mount Carmel. So now he wants a gathering of the people. 
So whatever this, uh, this refutation is going to be, he's calling men and women to come from all over the northern kingdom to witness this. This is going to be quite the gathering. This is not a small group of people. These are thousands of people in the northern kingdom that have come because an issue has to be decided. Are we or are we not people of the kingdom of God? Are we or are we not going to worship the God of this kingdom? So Elisha is going to take everybody on. So Ahab sent a message to all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elisha comes near to the people. He might, you can just see him up on that mountain. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Jehovah is God, follow him. If Baal is, follow him. And Elisha said, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. And he goes through this, this ritual. Now let's watch what he does. Let us give us two oxen, let them choose one ox for themselves, cut it up, so forth. And do another one. Then you call on the name of your God, I will call on the name of Jehovah, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people say, hey, great idea. And Elisha said to the prophets, can you see one of these tests coming up right now? Which of those two tests are, are, is he pulling on? It's number two, isn't it? Because he's saying that if I'm a prophet, my word shall come to pass. So he's using the structure that's already been there for centuries, embedded in the Word of God. This guy's not inventing anything new. And the more you know the Bible, the more you see that the New Testament isn't really new. There's a lot in the New Testament that is the same thing as the Old Testament. It just seems to be new because we never read the Old Testament. It's new to us. Okay. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you choose an ox. So he lets them have complete control of this experiment. Notice the lengths that he goes to. He says, I'm not going to... You, you pick your own thing. They took the ox which was given them, they prepared it, called in the name of Baal from morning until noon. And it came about noon that Elisha mocked them. Now here's one of the great passages of Scripture because... Elijah is looked upon in the Bible as sort of like John the Baptist. Certain of these prophets were not kind of nice approach. This is not the Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people approach that he's using here. But he's using it for a purpose. He's up against this very serious issue. At, at stake here is the entire presupposition behind the allegiance of the people of the northern kingdoms. So he's not even witnessing to one person. He is witnessing publicly to the entire nation. And when he's in that sort of situation, he's going to go after his target. It's going to be a complete dismantling of a false system of religion. So now he begins to couch it in the silliness which it should be couched. And he says, call with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside or on a journey, perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Now, the interesting thing about all those activities is that they're all very human. They're all typical of mortal, fallen people. Do you notice after he says, call out with a large voice, he puts a little clause in there. He tells you, this is why you ought to. For he's a god. See, it's sarcasm. Really, the way we translate that is, he's a god, isn't he? Well, maybe he's out for lunch. Why don't you call a little less? It's noontime. Maybe he's taking a lunch break. And so he, he does this, and he obviously he's able to project his voice over to, so thousands and thousands of people are hearing him. 
And then he decides that he's going to do his thing. And in verse 32, 33, 34, 35, notice the elaborate precautions that he takes to avoid any hint that this is a trick. He's not arguing that there's some sleight of hand magic trick that he's pulling off here in front of everybody. He's not trying to say, I'm a better magician than the other guys. This is going to be a genuine... So he creates this experiment that can be explained only in terms of a divine work. This is why in verse 33 and 34 he talks about soaking it in water. Lest anybody say that this whole thing is... Um, you know, it's just a joke. Of course, I've heard skeptics say, oh, well, what he did see, he's put oil and petroleum in the water and then he dropped a hot brand into it. Yes. No matter what you do, you know, somebody's always got some cute way of getting around the, the Word of God. And verse 36, it came at the time of the evening, so he's had hours. This, the whole process of pouring water started mid-afternoon at the very latest. So we're talking three or four hours of soaking in this water before this whole thing starts. And of course, dramatically, he's waiting for the sun to start setting, to lower the, the skylight down. So when God answers with fire, it's going to be very clear who, what he's doing. Now, we said there's two tests for a false prophet, not one. Test number two was that the prophecy will come to pass. Test number one is what? Doctrinal consistency. What do you notice him doing in verse 36? Notice the basis of his prayer and things he omits from the prayer. These, this is one of the great prayers of Scripture. It came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. He came and he said, O Jehovah, let's break this prayer up and see what he's doing. O Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. Now, immediately, when you just stop right there. With that title... What does he have in his head that we studied two years ago, or a year ago? One of the great covenants, Abrahamic covenant. Remember what the Abrahamic covenant did? The Abrahamic covenant set up all the mechanics for the life of the nation. It was the call of God on the nation. The Abrahamic covenant was the election covenant. It, it teaches us justification by faith. It teaches us the whole issue of election. And it teaches us what faith looks like. And it's these elements that are the foundation of Israel. Notice what he doesn't refer to in here. In this prayer of verse 36, he's not mentioning Mount Sinai. He's not mentioning the law code. He could have. I mean, you know, the drought and the whole issue was the discipline effect of the law. But why do you suppose he dwells in an hour of crisis, not upon the Mosaic law code, but upon the prior Abrahamic covenant? What did that covenant do that the Mosaic law never could do? It was the covenant that guaranteed the survival of the nation. Remember? Land, seed, and blessing. Which is the covenant that expresses God's sovereign will in history? It's the Abrahamic covenant. So, that's the election covenant. 
here he is, he's praying that the nation move on in history on God's plan and his timetable, but he's building the foundation for this progress of the nation in history, not upon the law, but upon Abraham. This is why Paul, in the New Testament, when he starts talking about Abraham and Romans and talking about justification and the law of salvation doesn't come through the law, Paul's not introduced. People act like Paul made this up or that nobody understood this before the Damascus Road. That's false. If you read the Old Testament, it's clear that these prophets themselves knew. It wasn't the law itself that gave you the power. You had to have a personal relationship with the God of the law. And the code word, when you see that, is circumcised heart. That's the Old Testament term that corresponds in the New Testament to our term, regeneration. They had something parallel to what we call regeneration. They called it circumcision of the heart. It's spiritual surgery that the Holy Spirit did to believers under the Old Testament. And these people trusted just like you and I trust in the Lord. Their confidence wasn't in the law. They respected the law because the law spelled out what God wanted them to do. But their trust wasn't in their great performance of what God wanted them to do. Their trust was that God was going to have the victory ultimately in spite of what they did. So, it, he, in, in this prayer, he comes back to the theology of the first five books of the Bible, in particular, theology of the book number one, Genesis. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known now he moves to identifying the Mosaic Covenant a little bit here. Let it be known that thou art God in Israel. And here the word Israel means the nation. In the previous clause, Israel was a name for Jacob, the individual man. Here Israel refers to the nation at large. Let there be known that there is a God in Israel. In other words, God has called this nation into existence. And there's a great king above all the little human kings. And so he's arguing that, God, you are the king here. Show yourself. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. And notice again in verse 37 the motive for the answer. It isn't, oh, that you may glorify me and I can be a great prophet and I get lots of medals and media attention. That's not the motive here. He says, answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God and you've turned their heart back again. Now, isn't that interesting? Look at that last phrase. He basically is telling about a revival in the nation. But do you notice how the revival has to take place? The revival has to take place going back to the basics of who God is. Revival doesn't come just because people decide to be good or uh, in some human's approach. All of the revivals in Scripture happen because of who and what God is. And it behooves us to, to remember this. When we go back to who and what God is, remember, let's look at what He is. God is sovereign. Baal is not sovereign. Baal is nature forces. How do we know Baal isn't sovereign? They've been talking to him for three hours and nothing happens. So either he's deaf, he's not there, in which case he's not omnipresent, or he can't do, can't pull it off. 
So notice what Elisha's really doing is he's going over and reminding the people of these attributes that God has. He has love. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent, immutable, eternal, and all the other attributes. That's who God is. And what he's arguing for is, in revival, what is prominent is who God is. Not what people are doing. Whether doing this, rolling down the aisle, whether raising their hands. All this is just human response. And it can take a variety of forms based on individual personalities. But what unites them is the fact that there's a clear perception of who our God is. And if that perception is clear, then the whole issue of sin is clear. Because I can't perceive God like this and just stand casually in His presence. If that is clear, that takes care of the sin issue. Don't have to deal with the details of that. Because, not, it's not, we don't deal with it. But you can't get spiritual conviction of sin by looking at it horizontally as a social problem. And looking at this, ooh, this sin is so bad over here because this, 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 and this. And people despise somebody that does that. Well, ultimately, remember what we said in Psalm 51? What did David say when he sinned? Adultery and murder. And he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. I've done wrong against people, but I sin against God. And in that psalm, the psalm of confession, that was the key issue. Not what he'd done to Bathsheba, not what he'd done with Uriah, even though he had done those things. It's not making light of that. It's simply saying, you can never get back to God looking horizontally. We have to get back to God looking vertically. And when we're fleeing from God in our sin and we're out of fellowship, we don't want to come back to fellowship. I mean, come on, we've all gone through that. The last thing on your heart is you kind of know you ought to. But right now you're going to enjoy it while it lasts. And what has to happen? God has to speak through circumstances, other people. And he say, yoo-hoo, wake up somehow. And what is Elijah doing on Mount Carmel to the nation at large right now? This is a wake-up call. That's what it is. And what he's arguing for is that a national revival at this point in Israel's history can occur, O oh Lord, if you will show yourself may not last for more than 50 years or 15 years, but there could be a great revival here, God, if you would just show yourself. Now, I'm you know, taking my reputation at Lance. I've got, I'm standing up here alone. I've got 450 to 1 odds here. And I'm trusting you to come through. And so, verse 38, good story. It always has a great end. God comes through. And notice, he comes through not only the fire, the wood, the stones, and the dust, but that licked up the water that was in the trench. It was so hot, it took the water off. And then in verse 39, obviously the response, and the people say, oh, he is God, he is God. Now in verse 40, let's go back to our first uh, point, these tests. What were these tests for? To convict the false prophet. What, was the, what did we say was the punishment for a false prophet? Capital punishment. What do you see being administered right here? Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. They seized them. Elisha brought them down to the brook Kishon, which is that little thing you saw there in the pictures, and he slowed them there. Pretty, probably messed it up pretty well. Elisha said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of roar of heavy shower. 
Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah went to the top of Carmel. He crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. And he went seven times. He's going up on the height of that mountain that you saw, looking out over what is now the city of Haifa, looking out into the Mediterranean. Just, just that picture I showed you. Now in verse 44, the report comes back. Here come the clouds. And so he says to Ahab, go prepare your chariot, go down, so the heavy shower does not stop you. And then this amazing thing, uh, where uh, verse 46, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. 23 plus miles. And so that's, the, that's one of the two incidents we want to get uh, through tonight. The incident of Carmel. Again, review. What did the incident of Carmel do? It blasted the apostasy right at its very core by assaulting the nature of the idol. He took it on. He didn't waste time on peripherals. Well, what? gee, we don't believe the false prophets because they wear their cloaks differently than we do. Or they part their hair differently or some other thing. That wasn't the issue. The issue was which God do they worship? What is their central presupposition? Is it grounded on the word of God or is it the word of men? That's the issue. And that's the issue we called the people back to. Now, there's so many incidents in this book, and we're only going to show you one more in this, in this cycle of Elijah. It's a quick one, 1 Kings 21, because there's another consequence of false religion and false prophecy. Whenever you have the word of man and you have the word of God demeaned, put aside, and not taken seriously, it creates a vacuum. And into that vacuum will come the word of man and the authority of man. And inevitably in history, when the word of God gets weak, the state becomes strong, in the, in the bad sense. The state becomes a superpower because now, because God isn't there, the word of God isn't there, now the state becomes the arbiter absolutely of what's right and what's wrong, knowledge of good and evil. The state becomes God walking on earth. So, in chapter 21, we have an incident that shows that. Verse 2, Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have for a garden because it's close beside my palace and I'll give you a better vineyard if you will like and I will give you the price of it in money. Now that's very analogous to something the state does today. If the state wants to run a, a Route 24 through your backyard, they have a doctrine in which they can do that. You realize that when you own property, you do not, in the pagan lands, including our land, you do not have absolute title to the, prof to the, prof to the property under your feet. There's a legal term that lawyers have called eminent domain. And eminent domain is a doctrine that says the state can take what it wants to, whether you own it or not. Usually it's not quote, you know, phrased quite so bluntly as that. And this is what he's going to pull this stunt now with Naboth. That's the issue. And verse 3, they got a problem because in God's kingdom, unlike a pagan kingdom, property is not controlled ultimately by the state. The property and the eminent domain clause attaches to who? Who gave Israel the land? God did. So who ultimately owns the land? 
God does. And in the early chapters of, of uh, Joshua and Judges, remember in Joshua we had those boring things about, oh, the tribe of Gad lived from here to there, and they went from this city to that city. And you know, if I crying out loud, can't we get in some good stuff? Why do we have to go through all this stuff? Remember we said there was a reason for that. That was the real estate deeds of the families of those tribes, that God gave the land, He gave the deed as the owner of that land to the people. Now, really, powerful spiritual uh, truth comes out of all this, so follow my reasoning. The land was ultimately given by God to tribes, not to the king. 1 Samuel 8, remember that passage? What did he say? You get a king, and what is he going to do? He's going to take your land. See? All right. There was no such thing as eminent domain inside the boundaries of the kingdom of God. Because God has eminent domain. And that's why in the psalm, when you read the psalm, O Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills, that's not just poetry. God owns them because by virtue of his creation, and secondly, by virtue of his redemption. So the land is completely God's. And so Naboth says to Ahab, God forbid me that I should give you, and he uses a very precise word in verse 3, God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What he's arguing for is that the title to the land was given to his family by God. Now, this gives you a, a tremendous view, if you think about it for a minute, of the tremendous freedom that the kingdom of God gave people. God gave freedom like the man has never seen. We have never, ever, including our own country, ever had absolute ownership of property like this. Never. We don't now, and we never will. But here, the families possessed an eternal title to that land because God gave it to them. Well, Naboth isn't going to do it because he's hot man on the block now. So he came back. Now, this is an interesting character study. He comes back and he pouts, sullen and vexed because of the word that Naboth the Jezreelite spoke to him. He said, I won't give you the inheritance of my father. So he lay down in his bed and he turned away his face and he ate no food. Poor boy. He's having a pity party here. And along came Jezebel. How is it that your spirit is so sullen? You're not eating food. Because I spoke to Naboth and he didn't give me my toy. And so Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? You see, the strength in this marriage came from the woman. See? Jezebel called the shots here. And she was the one who had her agenda. Here comes her dad's agenda, see? She figured this guy... She, he probably took one look at Ahab when he asked for the hand of his daughter and said, Man, this guy's a sucker. Sure, you can have my daughter, and he's working the deals out where he can take another country down the south of him. So here she is, and verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, she works with her attorneys. Say, we're going to pull a deal in the court system here, get this all cleaned out, proclaim a fast, seat Naboth at the head of the people, sit two worthless men before him, let them testify against him, you cursed God and the king, take him out and stone him to death. Very simple. Got two witnesses, invoke such and such clause of the law, and you got it made. So, legal shenanigans, here they are. Been going on for centuries. And she kills him. Now, God has something to say about this. Verse 16, it came about when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead. Ahab rose to go get his little toy. 
In verse 17, then, the word of the Lord came to Elisha. And he said, go, go meet Ahab, who's in Samaria. He's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession of it. You say, have you murdered and taken possession? And here's the, here's the sentence of God upon him. In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick your blood. See, Elisha really had some great messages. I mean, these were fantastic sermons that were so extremely popular to the people. I will bring evil upon you. I will utterly sweep you away. I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because the provocation which you provoke me to anger. What is he saying, by the way, verse 22, those of you who have followed in Thursday nights? What does a king always want besides a kingdom? He wants what? A dynasty. Remember? David. So what does he mean when he says, your house will be like the house of Jeroboam, like the house of Basha? He's saying, you won't have any dynasty. I'm going to take your dynasty away from you. I offered you a dynasty. I offered you the kingdom, just like I've offered all these guys. And this is about dynasty number four, by the way, or five, I've lost count, in the northern kingdom. How many dynasties have you had in the southern kingdom, by the way? One. Why? What's the covenant? The election, sovereign covenant that controls the southern kingdom? Davidic covenant. There will always be a Davidic dynasty. But in the north, where there is no protective sovereign word from God, what's happening to the dynasties? One after another, after another, after another. No stability, nothing. Why? Because it's the word of God that ultimately, in its sovereign power, gives stability. So, this goes on, and then we're going to have a fulfillment of this prophecy. By the way, notice also in the same text, verse 22 and verse 23, and of Jezebel also has Jehovah spoken, the dog shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. Well, let's see how this played out. Uh, verse 19 is the death of Ahab, so if you'll turn to 22, 1 Kings 22, verse 34... Right in the middle of a battle, Ahab's got a disguise on, trying to avoid getting shot. And lo and behold, a certain man drew his bow at random. Notice the text. This is all accidental, quote, end quote. And struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver's chariot, Turn around, take me out of the battle, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans, and he died in the evening. Blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city, every man to his country. The king died, was brought to Samaria. They buried him. Verse 32-8, here's the fulfillment of the prophecy. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. The dogs licked up his blood. And by the way, the whores bathed themselves there, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. So here's the prophecy of Elijah, and it came to pass, because he's a genuine prophet. Now, he also made a prophecy about Jezebel. So let's turn to 2 Kings 9 and see what happened to that prophecy. 2 Kings 9, verse 30. After Ahab, there's another man who ascends the throne who is going to God's cleanup man in the north for a while. His name is Jehu. Verse 30, Jehu came to Jezreel. Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked out the window. And Jehu entered the gate and said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? 
Um, then he lifted up his face to the window and he said, who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down up and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and he said, see now, this cursed woman and bury her. She's a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. They therefore returned and told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elisha. In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. So that's how God took care of that little problem in his kingdom. Nasty stuff, isn't it? When you sing, our God reigns, think about it. That's our God and that's how he reigns. And that's how serious he is about his kingdom will exclude evil. We're going to conclude, if you look at um, my notes on page, um, page 28. Sort of try to summarize this section because now we're going to, next Thursday, we're going to get into some of the teaching of sanctification in the Christian life that we draw out of this history. On page 28... This is, a, this is a long quote from a great book. If you ever can get a hold of this book, get it. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but if you see it in a used bookstore, it's called Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva McLean. It's one of the finest books ever written on the kingdom of God by a man who taught many years at Winona Lake, Grace Theological Seminary. Many people have said that Alva McLean, uh, this book is the finest book ever written in all of church history on the, on the title, The Kingdom of God. It's called Greatness of the Kingdom. This principle of man's being well-conditioned by obedience or disobedience to God holds good general. What he's talking about here is this. People argue there's no God that's holy and good in history because the evil people get away with evil and the good people don't get blessed. Okay? That's the background for his comment. Now watch how he approaches this. Talking about Israel in particular. Not the United States, not England, not Rome, not Babylon, just Israel. And the Mosaic Law Code, Deuteronomy 28, blessing and cursing, Leviticus 26, blessing and cursing. This principle of man's well-being conditioned by obedience or disobedience to God holds good generally in all nations in every age. But its operation has often been obscured to human eyes by the time lag between the moral breach and the infliction of the sanction. While it is always true that the nation which has sown the wind shall also reap the whirlwind, the harvest is generally and mercifully long delayed. And for this very reason, men often fail to see the causal connection. Furthermore, in the general history of nations, the divine penalties are inflicted through secondary causes behind the veil of providential control. So it's masked. For these reasons, the skeptical have been able to question the existence of any divinely ordained moral government in human history. The Lord's own people at times have been greatly troubled and perplexed by the problem. But, in the case of the nation Israel in her mediatorial kingdom of history, which is his term from Moses in 1400 to the fall in 586. So those two dates mark that mediatorial kingdom. 1400 to 586. But in the case of the nation of Israel in her mediatorial kingdom of history, the moral government of Jehovah was not only declared at Sinai, but was confirmed spectacularly in the recorded history of that kingdom by means of divine sanctions immediately imposed. Underline it. Immediately imposed. No time lags. That's the difference between the dispensation of Israel and the dispensation of the church today. God doesn't work that way today. 
But he did hear. Divine sanctions immediately imposed. And these sanctions were generally supernatural, either by the withdrawal of the promised supernatural protection from ordinary hazards of human life in a fallen world, or by the positive infliction of supernatural punishment. This close and immediate connection between the well-being of a chosen nation and their moral and spiritual attitude is most clearly summarized in Deuteronomy, etc., etc., etc. So that's the parting big picture of this phase of history that we're looking at. We're looking at God's chastening, God's disciplining within the household of faith, within his nation. Why? Because he's chosen that nation to be a nation that will ultimately be separated from evil. And the process of separating that nation from evil is a painful, painful process. Father, we thank you that you are our Father. And that as a Father who loves us, you do discipline us because you care for us. And if we we without chastisement, as the author of Hebrews says, we're bastards. And we're people who do not belong to the family of God. For the child of God cannot get away with sin without ultimately being disciplined. It has to happen because you're the kind of father you are. And we're thankful that you care enough to do this for us with a big picture in mind of our future destiny with you forever. And to get us in shape for that future destiny, we are being sanctified, sometimes painfully, sometimes with joy, but always progressing toward that ultimate goal that you have ordained for us. We thank you for this now in Christ's name. Amen. If anybody has any uh, questions, we'll entertain them. Topics to talk about. Yes. Now, that. <coughs> High places um, is a code word almost in the Old Testament for apostasy. And it's because people had a memory, I believe, either of either of Ararat and Eden or both. And that um, you see the tendency in pagan architecture to the pyramid and the tower. Everybody wants to get up. Everybody wants to elevate the, the idea of the, the scale of being and the idea that they can become like God Most High. So when God speaks, it's on a mountain, usually. Like here you saw Carmel, and if you notice in the pictures, one of the reasons why I show you the pictures is it clearly that Carmel range dominates the landscape. There's no higher land than that. Um, Jerusalem is high. Mount Sinai is high. Even in the New Testament, where does Jesus give his key sermon? Sermon on the mount. So, God speaks from mountains. That's true. It's rather that in the high places, these were apparently small pinnacles of land, and they would build their uh, altars on these lands to be seen. I mean, uh, the same principle holds every time I drive down on the uh, beltway here, what do you see when you head west on the north end of the loop? And there's the angel Moroni sitting there. Um, the, the Mormons did the same thing, put it in a high place. So, you know, you can see it every time you drive the beltway. Well, they do that, I guess, because intuitively it's, it's a way of advertising, it's a way of showing their faith in the public. And that's why Solomon was compromised because you'll see the little little phrase sometimes in the Old Testament, he sacrificed on high places. See, that's illegitimate. 
because God told them where to sacrifice. He wanted sacrifice at the temple or the tabernacle. So when you see that phrase, they sacrifice in the high place, what it's saying is that I'll sacrifice, I'll do my worship however I want. I'm not bound by the word. I'll, I'll decide where I'm going to worship and how. So it comes across in a very physical way there. But the spirit behind it is very apostate. Yeah. I'm not aware of any uh, way. The question is about the degeneration at Tyre because earlier Hiram of Tyre was a friend of David and Solomon's and then you have this idiot, Ithbael, there. Um, the problem in all this history is to synchronize what you're picking up in archaeology and documents with the chronology of Israel. And you're always perennially fighting this problem of trying to sync it. So... I am not aware, even that problem aside, um, probably there's things there, Wade. There probably are documents that show the history of Tyre. I'm just not aware of them. But it's just at this time it was very clear that Baalism had been dominated and later become so encrusted that Ezekiel make that prophecy depicting the very king of Tyre in Ezekiel uh, 28 as Satan himself. The, the thing that gives you kind of a flavor for what might have gone wrong is that Tyre and Sidon were seaports and they were part of a civilization which came known down through history to the time of the New Testament as the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians were people who were explorers, they were businessmen, they were cartographers, they mapped the world. Uh, they went all over the world and they were very wealthy people. They had commerce uh, with all the peoples of the world. And this, the interesting idea of him being a Satan figure in Ezekiel 28 is that he's doing what Babylon does in the book of Revelation. Babylon, you've had uh, business relations with all the kingdoms of the world. So it's a world commerce type thing. Anybody got any questions? The widow of Zarephath? Well, that story, uh, there's deep significance to it. It's, it's the same problem, Carl, that when you read these stories, if we have to, when we read this portion of the Bible, give God the benefit of the doubt that there's some sort of a rationale. The book of kings is actually an argument. We're used to books like Paul and Romans where it's very didactic kind of an argument. But kings and Samuel are no less books that argue a case. They're sort of like in the style of the Gospels. There's a case made by the way they put history together. And stories are sequenced in certain ways. Sometimes they'll be out of chronological uh, relationship, but they're sequenced in a curious way. And that's because the author, under the Holy Spirit, has, is, is arguing a case. And the case that's being argued here, I like Dr. Bruner's example, uh, the case that's being argued here is a refutation of Baalism, once and for all. And Baal was the God who would provide rain. Gael was the God who would provide life. Baal was the God who was said to provide uh, the vine, fruit of the vine, all these things. And here you have a widow. She's lost life. 
she is penniless, she's helpless, you've got the, the grain problem, and you've got all these problems that Baal isn't solving. And how does she come, how does her problem get fixed? By identification of the prophet of Jehovah. So these stories are saying that Jehovah is the God who provides over against. Uh, and he provides exactly the things that Baal was supposed to be a specialist in. So all these stories, I believe, are, are part of that argument, the book, the argument of the book. And it's to remember, probably Kings was written when the nation fell. So Kings is a, is a, is a backward look at their history after they went down and saying, basically God's saying, okay, now you guys, I put up with you for four or five hundred years and I've had to discipline you, I've had to put you into exile, you've seen your families destroyed, you've seen your property gone, you're suffering all kinds of horrors in captivity. Now let me tell you the story of what went wrong. And King's is an analysis of what, what went wrong. Because like we talked here last week, um, probably if we lived in the midst of it, we wouldn't see it because it was so slowly developing. It was masked. I mean, if we had the Holy Spirit teaching us, uh, warning bells should have gone off. But still, by and large, everybody was sleeping through this thing. And, and then the prophets had to speak and say, well, there's a reason. Don't blame God because now you're suffering. Here's what happened. So that's the big argument in all those stories. I am not um, equipped to answer that question because... I haven't studied that to my satisfaction, but there are obviously there's reasons for it. Dan wasn't the slickest tribe that ever walked the face of the earth. I know that from the Old Testament history because they were the ones that started this. I mean, half the cult was right on their home territory. But I'm not sure um, because I'm just not that much of a student in that area. So I can't answer that. Anything else? Okay, well, next week... Oh, yes. Uh, Jesus refers to almost every book of the Bible at some point in his ministry. And this particular area, um, Jesus talks about Elisha several places. Now, he doesn't, to my knowledge, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't speak with specifics about Mount Carmel incident that happened here that we talked about tonight. But certainly, Elisha is well known to Jesus. In fact, he makes the problematic statement that really has you wondering. He says, Oh, Israel, if you had accepted me, then John the Baptist was Elijah. Now, run that one through the computer and see what you get. That's a really, that's one of those what ifs. If you had accepted me and we could start the kingdom now, then the prophet who brought me in would have been Elijah. And that would have been necessary because Elijah has to come before the Messiah. So how could John the Baptist be Elijah? And it gets all into all kinds of neat things. That somehow those two guys came out of the same exact real estate. Both of them had the same kind of ministry. Both of them were very similar in their personalities. And it is said in the New Testament that John had the spirit of Elijah. So, because remember, we saw how nasty he was to Ahab here. Did you, do you remember in the New Testament 
when the Pharisees come out to say, John, you know, gee, what's going on? He says, who told you snakes to come out here? So it's the same kind of response. <laughs> okay, well, next week we'll get into the doctrine more.